0: Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 2, Episode 5. Today I'm speaking with author Ben Stimson, who is a therapist, lecturer, student, and spiritual director. Ben has developed courses on a variety of topics, including ancestral veneration, the power of story, and folklore. In addition to his new book, Ancestral Whispers, a guide to building ancestral veneration practices, Ben has a podcast called Essence podcast with Ben Stimson, where they talk with pagan authors about paganism. I found this conversation to be very insightful, and I learned a lot about the topic of ancestor veneration, something I believe will be coming up a lot in the coming years. I'll be taking you now to my conversation with Ben Stimson. Welcome to the Calling of the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very, very happy to be talking to Ben Stimson, a therapist, lecturer, student, and spiritual director who has developed courses on a variety of topics, including ancestor veneration, the power of story, and folklore. When not working with clients in writing, Ben is engaged in his class of study, religious studies, medieval and classical studies, folklore, and spirituality. Ben, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your story of where you grew up um, initially and then where you Continue to grow up and how that kind of affected uh, who you came to be.
1: Absolutely. So I'm originally from the United Kingdom. I grew up in North Wales. Uh, My parents are English, but I was born in Wales. And for eight and a half years of my life, I lived over there. We emigrated to Canada when I was eight and a half. And I landed in a tiny little town, middle of nowhere, um, 8,000 people and 18 churches. And uh, so I suddenly went from being kind of just normal, right, just me. In amongst all the people I grew up with, suddenly I was uh, different. I was foreign. I was an immigrant. I was British. Um, I was all of these things. I was different. And then that difference just kept kept coming on. So I, I came out as gay when I was about 14. Um, around that time, I also uh, found paganism, partly because I was really dealing with a deep, culture shock and i was trying to find my way home again even if it was just emotionally so i latched onto anything that reminded me of of britain and the uk um you know i I would watch all the british british comedies british television shows documentaries attenborough was a big part of my life back then um and how i came to paganism originally was through folklore so i really loved um, I, we had several books when I was really young um, about Welsh folklore and and British legend and whatnot. And um, and I always, like, w- culturally speaking, we grew up with um, King Arthur and, uh, and Robin Hood and all of these classic kind of parts of, of British culture. So I came across the Mists of Avalon when I was about 15. And really loved this image of this loving mother goddess that was connected with Britishness. And um, at least for me. And, And so then I started to call myself a pagan. Started to research it. Um... I got onto the Vox, which I was, uh, for those older people listening to this, they'll know what Witch Vox is, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, yeah. And started, oh, yeah, right. And got onto some of the places like Pagan Space, Mystic Wix. And then for me, paganism was um, just a part of my life growing, like as a teenager in early 20s something. But it was online. I, I didn't have community. And so I went to university continued my studies, and in my mid-20s, I actually started to attend the festivals in, in Ontario here. I grew up in Ontario, Canada, and uh, and suddenly I found community. I found um, not only people who were like me, but people who celebrated the fact that I was British, the fact that I was gay, the fact that I was pagan, all of these things. Um, and then from there, I just started to really connect in with that sense of spiritual community, and uh, and developed so then from there hinduism had been a big thing for me when i was younger um again it was that like living community i i went to a school in toronto so i was surrounded by a very large uh, indian population went to temple there and uh and there was nothing I, I i i really loved that aspect of my spirituality but it wasn't home right um when i was in my later 20s i came to Lukumi um, the Afro-Cuban tradition, um, and, and lived with my godfather for a couple of years while I was in school again for psychotherapy. But again, it didn't feel like home because it wasn't my cultural background. It didn't speak to me in the same way as the figures from my British background did. But don't get me wrong, I love the Orishas and they were very, 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 very kind to me. Um, and my life changed completely. But throughout this whole process, it really has been a sense of being called home. And home is the landscape and all of the spirits and beings that live on that landscape of my origins. So I hope that answers the question. I hope I didn't go too far off the rail. No,
0: not at all. I love this answer. I um. So did you start like investigating any um, British um gods deities like did you have connection with anything in england what what happened with that for you
1: well so originally when i came to paganism a, a lot of it was um kind of a mishmash so i didn't really know anything about the ancient celtic tradition because right. that really is a hidden part of 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 the culture right so a lot of the um a lot of my my connection with britishness was through this kind of 80s 90s neo-pagan vision of what the ancient celtic past looked like and it was heavily connected with king arthur and, and that arthurian uh, cycle and then when i started to kind of go off and explore i was looking at hinduism shiva i was looking at the ancient greek pantheon particularly dionysus and, and hermes i was um i was checking in with the Orishas. i was connecting with the landscape here which i didn't really have excuse me a connection with um, and so I was lost for a long time. And that's, I think, where the ancestral piece comes in, why ancestor work really helped to guide me back towards um, the British Isles and all the spirits and gods that have existed over there and had connection with it. And so I, in 2018, around the same time I was working on my ancestral work through Lakumi, around the same time I was, I was involved in psychotherapy uh, training, I also joined the Order of Barbs, and Druids. And that was my way of really wanting to connect back in with the um, I hate the word Celtic, but it's the best word I can use to yeah. encapsulate, right um, yeah. because I was born in Wales, but my background isn't Welsh. Yeah I have an, I have Welsh ancestry. Um, I have Scottish ancestry, actually on all like if I go back three generations to my great grandparents, all of them are from all corners of of, the British and Irish Isles. So I had connections with with all like Ireland, Scotland, um, down south in in England, Wales and with Cornwall. And it's been interesting negotiating that for myself because I don't really have a, a strong sense of a connection to Ireland um i don't i the the de don't speak to me in the same way that some of like the romano british um speak to me um some of the, the local spirits in in north wales speak to me right but being over here and being far away from that landscape, it's uh, it's been a it's been a journey. Part of my journey home, physical journey home, is also to be reacquainted with those spirits. So the Order of Bards of Druids and Druids helped me with that. Luckily, I was in a good position where I was able to actually interact and connect with um, some of the major. Actually, Christopher Hughes, who you've had previously on, yeah. um, was a friend of a friend of mine, and so I I really connected in with him. And uh, and learned a lot about Welshness from him. Through that connection, I also um, became good friends with Mar Starling, who put out the Welsh Witchcraft book. So really, I I've heavily invested in 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 learning about that part of my spirituality through the people who live on that landscape and are, are connected with that landscape in a different way. than I I currently am. So it's um it's been a journey. But yes, I I've heavily connecting in with that landscape and the spirits there. I'm curious.
0: Did you get a chance to eventually travel back to England at any time and visit again?
1: I did. So one of the kind of the issues with my family is my my parents are the type of people where once a chapter closes, it's gone and done. Yeah. So we never went on holiday when I was a kid. I grew up in um in a, a self employed household. They ran their own business, and a lot of the kind of the trauma of, of of growing up in that space was my parents had no interest in going back to the UK. That we never did. And so uh, it took almost 15 years for me to get back there. Eventually, I was able to, I was very lucky to be able to get a job at a satellite campus from McKinney Junior University um, in Sussex in, in in England. And I worked over there in 2010 for a good five months. And through that, I was able to then go on weekend journeys and travels, um, field studies. So I, I was, I it was kind of like my return home tour. And uh, so five months I, I lived over there and worked over there. And then I spent a month up north with my, my extended family. Um, and then I came back to Canada and I've, I was overcome with a sense of homesickness um, and a sense of grief because I had to leave. And so I always intended to go back home. Um, and I think that's where the seeds of I, I'm going to do this one day eventually came and now I'm actually doing it so
0: <laughs> how did it affect you when you uh first landed on british soil after not being there for more than a decade how did that affect you um did was that kind of a, a little bit of a shock to you or was it a kind of gradual kind of reacclimating
1: well i i think because i had i had consumed so much of british culture over here and because um you know, um, uh, my family from over there often came over and visited us. I was yeah. always surrounded by and and involved in that community, but from afar, right? Um, yeah, I didn't really acclimate to Canadian culture very well. I I had some friends when I was a teenager, but most of my time was spent by myself, and uh, and it was only in university and and um and and in my twenties when I really connected in. Most of the people who I connected in with had either relationships to that landscape or they're from there themselves so i feel like a, a lot of the, a lot of my community um was was connected with that space so when i went over there in 2010 it felt very strange because i suddenly felt like i i felt the difference suddenly like i have a canadian accent as well as a british accent and because i was surrounded by canadians i was over there as a Canadian visiting right i had to I, I felt at times that i had to fight for people to see me as being uh, as belonging over there and when they did finally like when i say oh no i'm actually originally from here then the whole the oh come and speak to us oh and you know tell us about your journey tell us about you know th- there was that connection um but before that i was seen as a tourist so i think that caused a lot of um of, uh, of an issue for me. And, uh, and now I'm completely in a liminal space, I always will be in a liminal space. And most immigrants, I think and most, um, most people who move to a new area, um, will always find themselves in that space of, of being in between where they came from and where they are now. And I, 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 I found power in that. Um, but certainly I, 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 I'm I, preparing for myself to have culture shock again. Um, there's certain things I'm seeing over there that are really, really annoying me, such as like the indirectness that's part of the culture. <laughs> so, you know.
0: What was the biggest? I mean, from what I've seen of Canadian culture, I think a lot of people assume they're just like the United States. And I, I really don't believe that's true. From what I've seen of ca- Canadian culture from the outside, I see a lot of almost kind of what I would, I, I don't want to use this term because it's got a negative connotation, but I, I can only use it because it's the only word I can think of, but kind of a nationalism. People that are Canadian are very proud of being Canadian. They, 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 they think they'll talk a lot about it. It's a big deal, especially regionally. There's different regions. Canada's a big country and Canada is different in different parts. What was uh, the biggest cultural shock for you when you moved there and what, what what do you perceive of it now after you've lived there a while and you're you're gonna be going back to England? what are your thoughts of being somebody who lived there for a while
1: well i think I think the I think a lot of a lot of people a lot of americans what they don't understand about canada is how much of the national identity of canada is formed through um uh, through comparison to the united states because i think a lot of americans just assume that it is just like the united states there's a lot of many big differences um but i also think that canadians are more like americans than they are british but I think it depends on what region. The, you know, I, I think we need to we need to see Canada as Canada does. You know, if you go down to the Maritimes, uh, Newfoundland, who which only joined Canada in the 1840s, you go down to Nova Scotia, you go down east, right? There's a real sense of identity and very strong roots to to Ireland and Scotland, right? You go to Quebec, same thing. Really strong roots of Quebecois and, and Francophonie. Um, I think Ontario, because Ontario can contains i would say the majority of the population um we have something like like 10 million people living here out of like 35 million people ontario's culture is very very similar to the united states most of most ontarians go down to new york or, or detroit or into to go shopping to go visiting um you know a lot of people here it tends to be a, a big immigrant population because Toronto attracts a, a large number of immigrants. So just like many U.S. American cities, same thing. Um, there there seems to be a, that 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 connection to the states. Of course, a lot of our media is also connected to the states. So I I I really do think that there's a lot more similarities between Canada and the United States than than there is differences. Um, but yeah. that being said, Canada is also um. We we have our monarchy, that's the same as with British monarchy. Um, our our way of like our democracy is different up here, um, and certainly when we're looking down at the states, uh, we're looking down on the states, right? <laughs> yeah. So I yeah I for culture shock, I think um, for me the culture shock was because I was I was eight, right? Like I acclimatized very very quickly to Canadian culture. Um, What caused culture shock more for me was those little things like, um, you know, how I saw myself, how I spoke about my emotions. British people, at least from 30 years ago, didn't really speak about their emotions and it wasn't encouraged right i would say if anything uk culture now especially younger people um because they grew up on american tv and because of the 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 cross-cultural um connections i would say that british culture has taken on a lot of that lack of indirectness uh when it comes to to talking about feelings talking about emotions but it's a very generational thing so i um yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting. I think that there's an insularity that the UK has, um, and we're certainly seeing that because of Brexit. Um, that uh, that that is is very similar to the insularity of the United States. Whereas Canada and Canadians, they're so used to travelling to another country all the time. Because, you know, a majority of the places in Canada are only three hours from the U.S. border. So, you know, we're not traveling only within this one country. We're traveling to Cuba. We're traveling down to Mexico. We're traveling to the United States. We're traveling to Europe, right? And so I feel like Canadians are a lot more cosmopolitan than uh, than a lot of Americans. But yeah. there's a reason for that. America has everything that you could possibly need in a country. It's got maritimes. It's got mountains. It's got huge national parks. It's got such a varied landscape, and it's such a huge country that somebody could live their entire life in the United States without needing to go outside of it. So,
0: When you're a pagan in America, it can be easier or harder depending on where you live. Where I live in, where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, it is easier to be a pagan in some ways depending on what part of the Bay Area you live in you you can be out as a pagan at work and you're not going to have to worry about your job safety in most cases, mm-hmm. again, depending on what part, of where you, where you live. But, <laughs> um, you know, if you live in the heartland or you live in Texas, it could be, you know, even life or death if you're a pagan, maybe in some cases, especially with our love of guns and gun violence. Is it hard to be pagan in Canada?
1: Uh, no, I, I would say no. I mean, I think people would disagree with me on that. Um, I think that it depends, again, what what part of Canada you're in. If you're in Alberta and in the kind of the central provinces, um, that culture is much more like the heartland in the States than it is... Yeah kind of you know um ontario tends to be because it's so diverse um we don't tend to have now anyways that many issues with with people practicing um i i would say probably 20 years ago it was the same as down in the states you know the yeah. satanic panic happened up here the same way that it happened down there oh, Wow, um, yeah it's it was it's a thing i like Ontario is a very strange place because you have this massive population in Toronto and around the like the, the GTA, the Greater Toronto area. You have something like four million, five million people in that one area alone. And then suddenly you go outside of it and it's like middle of rural nowhere, right? And that rural culture um, is very, very similar to rural culture in uh, the Midwest, like Iowa, Illinois, very similar lifestyle, very, a lot of connections because it's so close, right? So in smaller towns, if you had said you were anything different, even 20 years ago, um, you, you would have had, you know, you would have had all sorts of problems. Now, because of the way Toronto has gone, so many people from Toronto um, in terms of expenses, so many people from Toronto have moved out into a smaller community is that you're seeing a varied diverse of diversification. So I feel like that's mellowed. I think it's also a generational thing too. Um, so it's, it's, it depends. It depends. Um, yeah, it really depends. But uh talking about witch funks from before, like um Kerr Cochrane. Um oh, yeah, yeah. One, yeah, Kerr. Um so he he was over uh, in Vancouver and I know he like in the early two thousands and late nineties, he really did a lot of fighting for you know pagan rights in that in that in that region. So again, I think it depends really. Yeah.
0: I wanna to talk to you about your new book out. Um there's so many things that I wanna ask about it Um, for many reasons and we're gonna go into this more. Can you talk about Ancestral Whispers? How did you come to write it? How did you come to conceptualize it and pitch it to Llewellyn? Let's talk about Ancestral Whispers.
1: Absolutely. So Ancestral Whispers started originally as a project uh, that I did in my psychotherapy program. So when I was training from 2017 to 2019, one of the big projects that we had to do was a family history uh, project. And it was a form of self-therapy. It was a form of understanding ourselves in relation to um, our family story and our family context. And it was it, we were using family systems theory as a, as a model. So we, we, we did a huge project with that, and uh, by the time I came to the end of that program, um, I was starting to think about what can I do to offer clients, because these days you can't just do therapy, you really need to be offering courses doing other things same with any other profession, I think. So I uh, I started putting together an ancestral, um, because the the uh, program I was taking was spiritual psychotherapy. I started putting together an ancestral veneration course, which would include the psychotherapeutic piece, but also in, in, involve the spiritual. In 2019, when I looked around at what, what, what was ancestral work in the Peking community, a lot of it was, and I'm going to generalize here, but a lot of it was really um, paying lip service to the ancestors. I think I understand why. There's a lot of pieces as to why that was. I think part of it is religious trauma. A lot of pagans don't know how to work with their ancestors, especially all those millions of ancestors who are who were Christian in between here and where a lot of an- pagans want to go with their ancestor work. Um, and I think also because there are no real rituals. You know, a lot of the ancestral um, traditions around the world, they have living ancestral practices that go back in time, many, 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 many generations. Neo pagans don't have those. We're used to building our own and reconstructing from the ancients, right? So, I uh, I didn't really see anything. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do this. I'll put this this course together, put together an eight month course, and then as soon as I like finished writing it up, the pandemic happened. Suddenly, I had no clients, and uh, I had a lot of time on my hands. And so, I moved uh, later that year. I moved into my own place, and uh, and I sat down with a friend of mine who's also a Llewellyn author. And I said, you know, I have this, I have this, I have this course I put together, and uh, and she encouraged me to actually do it so i ended up putting it out there and the first set of sessions um i think i had like six or seven people as part of it and we had a wonderful time by the time that was that was late 2020 and uh, i you know i i thought you know what i really i want to i want to do something with this so i sat down with her again and i said i think this will make a good book i think i've tested it we've gone through the process i see the benefit of this and so she's, she, she gave me some advice on kind of what the process of of approaching a publisher um, would be. And so I, I put together a, a framework and sat down with that and um, and I wrote the book. And then eventually, so what I did was I actually wrote the book first and then sent it to the publisher. What I should have done is I sent it to the publisher first and then wrote the book. But um, I, I spent eight months putting that together. And what was really important with me when putting this together was I wanted the experiential piece, having experienced ancestors a living ancestral veneration framework in Lakumi, um, and and having that relationship with my ancestors in that way. They're not symbolic. They're not archetypes. They are are, are, are existing in my life. It was important for me to write a book that was going to allow people to be inspired to take ownership of their practice without me giving them a ritual to do. Because I think that's my, one of my my criticisms of a lot of pagan books um, around ancestor work is it gives you things to do. The problem with that is that oftentimes people who don't know what to do in the first place will take that wholesale and then you're not relating to your ancestors you're relating to the person whose ritual that is ancestors even if it's using your own ancestors you know, it doesn't make any yeah. sense. That's part of the reason that cultural appropriation is is such a, a a an issue is because you're not engaging in communicating with your ancestors. You're using somebody else's words to try to communicate with your ancestors. And that's not going to work. That might not work for various different reasons. So I wrote the book as a more of a primer to lay out the worldview of ancestor veneration, lay out the various ways around the world that others and other communities interact with their ancestors in this way. Um, and then the questions of now, how do you relate to yours? To take ownership of their worldview, of the reader's worldview, to explore the subconscious worldviews that we exist within all of time. And then ask, so I ask for good questions in this book.
0: I want to break this down a little bit further. Um, Just from a personal side, um, I find this intriguing, especially right now, because I've um, had a lot of deaths in my family recently, and I feel like I'm having visitations from some ancestors. And it's, it's really palpable for me. But normally in my practice, and I think with a lot of people, maybe many pagans out there who are listening now. You know, usually we'll trot out our ancestors at Samhain and we'll do like a little altar or a Dumb Supper or something like that. And then for the rest of the year, we're like, you know, piss off, you know, we'll see you again at, at, at N next year. And so like it, for me, it's this is very intriguing because I think it's something that's been kind of an elephant on the table in the pagan community for a while, but we're not really addressing and now you are. So can you talk a little bit about it and your practice and how it kind of works
1: so this is. I, I'm going to preface this by saying this is my practice. I right. am not. I I am hoping that no one takes this and tries to apply it to their own life, because okay. that really goes against the the whole point of my book. Um, yeah. my relationship to my ancestors is developed partly because of my uh, cultural shock and 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 the 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 trauma of being ripped away from home when I was younger. Right. Yeah. Part of my journey back to my ancestors, and in some ways being guided by them back to this place, um, is, is so that I'm in a healthy place in order to interact with them and interact with the family story. But also part of it is to acknowledge the scope of the ancestors. So I think we often think about ancestors as just being blood, those ancestors of blood. Now that's a very Western point of view. It's a very yeah. old and ancient Western view, but when you look around the world and other uh, marginalized communities, even in the United States and Canada, um, the sense of what constitutes family is much broader. And so, it isn't so much about the 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 qualifying the type of, of relationship. It's about the relationship, right? So right. for me, a big part of my ancestor work is uh in connecting with those who have impacted my life in various parts of my identity, whether it be my uh my ethnic identity as a as a as an English or Welsh person, right? Whether it be as my um spiritual uh, identity, as as somebody who is a neo-pagan, folkloric, which whatever however way I, I describe myself, right? Um, my intellectual identity, my my sexual identity, right? My gender identity, all of these pieces. So whatever community I happen to be in in that moment, I have ancestors of that community that I'm interacting with and I'm existing as because of my relationship to them. Right. So my my uh my my actual physical practice um is all ways of communicating with those individuals and in those groups. Um, and so it takes on different forms depending on that. My main way of ritual practice, and I, I tend to see ritual practice as being form of communication. So my main uh, my main framework comes from Lakumi. Um, I use the kind of the, the the framework that I was I was taught in Lakumi, which is having an ancestral shrine all the time, not just at Sawen, and yeah. not just at one point in the year. Um, I'm interacting with my ancestors by giving them food, placing offering down, speaking to them, praying to them, right? Um part of the metaphysics of of that altar space then um ties into the the worldview that i'm 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 I'm, I'm seeing and understanding the ancestors through. So I'll never place my ancestor shrine close to the living heart. The living heart of the home, um, which is the kitchen, because there needs to be a separation between the idea of death and the idea of life. The kitchen is really about life, so I place the the uh, the ancestor shrine near the back door, which uh, exits right. And speaking about worldview, then, the idea that I'm not I'm not taking on a, a Judeo-Christian worldview of, of the ancestors as being in some far-off remote place. I'm right. understanding that they are accessible here all the time. And because they're accessible here all the time, I need to keep working at building that relationship in the same way that they're constantly building their relationship with me. So it's about understanding, then, their impact in my life now. It's, it's understanding that I can communicate with them now in various ways. Um, and that's why grief and and mourning traditions are different from veneration traditions. Right. Mourning is about the passing. Mourning is about the uh, is the the getting the individual to where they need to be in a spiritual sense. Whereas veneration is once they're there, it's interacting with them. Right? Does that make sense? It
0: does. I I gotta ask you. This must be. And if this is too personal, we can you know edit it out. This must be really healing i would imagine
1: Yep, absolutely it was absolutely was it was one of those things that i i didn't realize how much trauma i received from moving over here and for the vast majority of my life, part of the big issue was I felt like I didn't have any control because of that. Now, part of that is also growing up in a family where I my parents um, exhibit narcissistic traits. I love my parents, don't get me wrong, but um, but they are both narcissistic in in many ways. And that caused issues around control within the family. Um out of a healing from that has been understanding that I do have power in my life. And that I think has come from my ancestors. Right. That has come from them inching me towards where I need to be, healing from fucking up my life in multiple ways. Right. Um, you know, one of the one of the reasons I went into social work originally was because I didn't know what to do with my life, because I didn't feel like I really had a life, right? One of the reasons that I so heavily focused on the past was because I didn't really see a future for me because I, I, I wasn't taking control of my own life. Right. I think also um, that idea of working with death, understanding death and understanding legacy. Also brought in a great deal about responsibility, and many many times in my life, I was I was very irresponsible, and uh, and and that caused some very unhealthy things in my life. So I think that understanding that legacy piece in working with ancestors, and understanding that my context came from my uh, my ancestors, whichever ancestor group we're talking about, then made me understand: okay, I am a link in a chain; I can't be the end of that chain.
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, one of the things that I saw in one of the topics uh, in one of the chapters that is reincarnation versus multiple lives. Can we discuss that a little bit?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, that's I think in chapter two or chapter three, something like that. Um, so part of that conversation is I often get I often get asked this, about you know, if we are if we believe in reincarnation, then what exactly are we connecting with if we are thinking of ancestors, right? Because the whole idea of the ancestors is that they are in some sort of dead space somewhere, but they are in some sort of afterlife. So if you believe in reincarnation, then your soul doesn't go to an afterlife; it goes to the next life, right? And, um, and so I think that that, again, speaks to that idea of like, you know, who in relationship and like, w- what is your worldview around this? You know, you have people who say they believe in reincarnation, but they want to do ancestor work. Well, how is that going to work if you're, you know, if you think that there's nothing there, right? So I I I discuss the various ways that one can approach this for themselves. Um you know, there's this idea of multiplicity of the soul. So, in many ancient cultures, many contemporary cultures, there's this idea that the soul of a spirit is actually made up of multiple other parts. Only some of those parts go to an, uh, get stored in an afterlife, um, while other parts go on to incarnate again and again. Right. So, I, th- I think that that question really it comes down to where where people are at with that. Um, but again, that that is part of the greater conversation about worldview. And if you're building a practice that doesn't make sense to your underlying worldview, then what's going on for you? Like, is it going to become very confusing really quickly? So, um, so that that piece is 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 big. I think that in many of the cultures that have reincarnation as part of them, um, there are certain kind of built-in pieces. So, in Hinduism, for example, um, you know, the the Western view is that uh, reincarnation happens immediately. Over there, there is this stream of thought that um, an individual has to wait for three lifetimes um, or three generations in order to then reincarnate. When you look at that, that really ties into the idea of within living memory. So once somebody passes just past the border of living memory, then then they're released to go on to their next life. Um, There's other streams of thought, which is that the personality exists in an afterlife state. Whereas the animating part of the soul goes on to live. And so at the end of time, the end of existence, all of the various incarnations come together to form together. But in the meantime, what you're actually interacting with as an ancestor is this personality in an afterlife, right? Wow. This is all supposition. This is all supposition. It depends on how you're seeing it, you know? I think it also depends on your own relationships with your ancestors. I think that the vast majority of neo-pagans will come from a Judeo-Christian background. yeah, And, um, and so then that worldview is really heavily involved, even in neo-paganism. Um, you know, as, as much as people strive to kind of come out of that cultural view, if you really ask a lot of people kind of what they really believe, they'll be unsure about their neo-pagan beliefs because the, the, the Judeo-Christian concepts of soul and body and afterlife is so imbued into the culture, right? Mean.
0: Absolutely. And I don't think people talk about this enough because I do think we are very still influenced um, as pagans by our Judeo-Christian background. I I find that like Catholic pagans and Baptist pagans and uh, Lutheran pagans probably have very different practices. And I think probably because it's really hard to shake that stuff, you know.
1: Well, so much of it's subconscious, right? Yeah. And I think that's why I spend so much time and effort in my book to point out and get people to think about the subconscious when it comes to what they're actually doing, because Again, it can be very, it can become very confusing if you're saying one thing but doing another when it comes to ritual practice. Um, yeah, it just doesn't make sense, right? You know. But I think also there's this pressure within Neopaganism to take up a worldview that might not actually really be all that important to you. And I think that's yeah. uh, one of my soapbox moments is this idea of you know seeing all of this as symbolic, or psychologizing it to death, right? Um, right. I think that, for me at least, um, the importance of ancestor work is understanding that these are beings and not just symbolic archetypes that are floating around, right? Same with spirit work, right? It's far easier for uh, a symbolic archetype not to fuck you up versus the spirit that you're dealing with, right? Right. (laughs) I apologize. I hope I'm okay to swear on this, but (laughs) you're totally fine.
0: Can we talk about the idea of the founder ancestor that you mentioned in the book?
1: Yeah, for sure. This one I actually realize is uh, is fraught because depending on the cultural context, it's gonna mean something different. So um in old world in old world countries and cultures, the 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 history goes back thousands of years sometimes, uninterrupted, right? In settler countries, oftentimes you have um, settler founders who come over and that's maybe only 300 300 years tops, right? So oftentimes it's either within living memory or it's it's, it's well-documented. So in older cultures, you tend to find that um, there's a lot more mythological founders of towns and settlements and places than there are named uh, historical individuals. Partly that's because the the individual has passed out of living memory, partly because the community has needed to create a legendary character in order to put all sorts of um, pieces around identity onto them, right? So in, in 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 Europe and and in Asia and in Africa most of those places are mythological. oftentimes some of them through apotheosis have become deities. Um, oftentimes they've become semi-human so you'll see like you know uh, gog and magog for example um, in, yeah. in, in, in you know right the, the giants, all of these things in the in, in, in Canada, the United States and Australia and New Zealand particularly. I'm not saying South America because that's a different context, but in those yeah. settler cultures, you have founders who they came in, they found land, and they built a settlement fair, often at times at the at the expense of the local indigenous people. Yeah. Um, so you have You have these founder figures who are the founders of the town, the historical individuals, but they've started to become semi-legendary because the community has needed a sense of origin. That's really where mythology is is coming from. It's that sense of origin. So, you know... um, A founder of a particular town wasn't. It didn't just come over and kill a load of indigenous people. You know, he fought his way through the wilderness. He founded this settlement. He brought people here to community. You know, create community, right? And then you have founders' days. So it's that celebrating of that founder at the expense of the actual history because it serves the purpose of the community identity, right? Yeah. So I. In, the same process happens in the in 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 Europe and and the old old world. It's just those founders are now mythological beings. So you have you know the a uh, pageant of Gog and Magog, or you have you know the uh, the a uh, pantomime about the founding of this town, who by this saint who happened to you know be running from the Romans or whatever it is, right? There's this pageantry about it, right? So I think how people relate to these this sense of founders. Um, is going to depend on their cultural context. I think also we then start to stray into this idea of apotheosis. Um, when you think of of quite a few ancient cultures, um, the founder becomes kind of the um, the figurehead group. so you often see the idea of like the house gods in Roman and and Slavic cultures. Um, the brownie to some degree in, in english culture and scottish culture um, they become the figureheads they become the central kind of focuses of for the whole collective and uh, and oftentimes then venerating the founder venerating the house god venerating the patriarch of the matriarch of the family then is a you're venerating the whole family and you're venerating your place within that family and your sense of that community right So I think that, uh, again, it depends on kind of what cultural context you're coming from. But the sense of if you don't know who your ancestors were by name, you can still venerate or work with that particular individual who then becomes bigger than life and becomes a container of everything that that community needs of them, Hmm. if that makes sense.
0: It does. I mean, this is so provocative. I really think this is going to explode out once people really start reading the book this is going to become a a very talked about thing can we talk a little bit about some of the rituals that
1: you have in the books and if, if you don't mind of course. Um, well, there are no rituals in the books. <laughs> okay. That's okay. very intentional. I haven't given any ritual to uh for people to follow in this. What I have done though is I in the second half of the book, I've I've broken down all of the elements of of a living ritual practice. Uh-huh. My approach with ritual is that oh my understanding of ritual is that it is a form of communication that uses gesture symbol and and performance as a way of communicating with spirits the deities each other whatever right so i i I talk about how then what do all those elements mean what can they mean what use do they have um and so then i use a lot of examples of what of what ritual could look like ritual depends uh, ritual is is is, as useful to us as um as brushing our teeth in the morning that yeah. we can build a whole spiritual routine um, that will will allow us to interact with the other and, and the spiritual world and ourselves too. Um, sometimes rituals are about about communication sometimes they are about um uh, about uh gaining something so propitiating you know putting food down with the hope of uh, as an offering with the hope that your ancestors or the spiritual beings are going to come in and help you in your life right um magic is a ritual right and I think that's, um, that's one of my uh, my, my major qualms with how often ancestral work is talked about in, this, in in witchcraft and paganism as a form of magic. Well, it isn't a form of magic. Magic is a, a form of ritual and a form of practice, but not everything is magic. Um, with ancestral magic, what you're essentially saying is, I'm going to work with these beings because I'm getting something out of it. I've, I have a task and I have something I want to get. Whereas veneration is building that relationship. So all of the rituals that I talk about in the book are really about strengthening relationship so that then you can go and and propitiate or or work with these beings um in magic or even just to have them as part of your life, right?
0: Yeah, we talked before we started recording a little bit about um your book and the many aspects of it. and I feel like for me, you know, somebody who's read Llewellyn books for years and has, you know, many of them in my collection, I feel like this book and a few others that are coming out now are kind of a sea change for Llewellyn. From the cover, you know, usually the cover is not a big deal, but for me, I think it was a huge telling sign because I was almost honestly, and I don't mean this to sound bad, but like when I saw the cover, I was like, I was not sure it was a Llewellyn book to start off with. I thought maybe there was a mistake mm-hmm. and I'd gotten some other book. And I was really happy with the cover. I, I would actually own the cover as an art print in my home because it's Beautiful that result. well done. Yeah, it's very well done. And um, then looking within the context of the book and the way it's written is a huge departure, I think, for pagan books in general, which I loved. I love this. And, I, and I'm and i seeing this kind of as a new, um, new wave um, within pagan writing. What are your thoughts on this because you you actually had you know a lot of talks as well when you were writing the book and, and publishing it how do you feel about this kind of change that's coming upon uh, pagan uh, publishing right now
1: as an in insider now to the industry and as somebody who has spent a lot of time with my own podcast connecting with other authors and hearing the kind of the, the back chat um, sort of stuff that goes on um I think that it makes a lot of sense. I think that the pandemic really um really affected people's relationship with books. I think that people are now really ready for deeper things. I don't I don't think we're necessarily understanding how deeply and profoundly the pandemic affected people in society. I think suddenly having death very, very, very close to us in a way that I would say we haven't seen since 9-11 in North America um, has been a big thing and I think that people are ready for deeper and more experiential pieces I think that there's also I mean I think that the demographic has changed too if we look at say the younger which is now a lot of them are on TikTok and on instagram and they're learning and they're connecting in with uh, in in a very different format from from kind of the book approach so i think that the the book community is aging and that they're now finding themselves in different parts of their lives and are, are really seeking um something deeper now because you know we're in our 30s 40s and 50s right i i think that that is a natural change i think that also um a lot more people are are now connecting in with tradition and connecting in with um with with again reading again experiencing i know a lot of people who like even on witch talk um i'm really connected with dark academia circles for example i'm in school right now too and a lot of the younger folk who are are really refinding the classics again um which is really cool like um Very interested in 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 reading, slowing down, in finding connection again, and I think that's partly due to us being because of the pandemic being so disconnected. So I I can't really speak I can't really speak for all of Llewellyn because I I I certainly there's certainly a lot of books being put out by all the publishers, but I do notice that shift as well, and I think that there's again there's um very good reasons for it. I think. I think that is also perhaps where we're looking now, like I, I'm certainly recognizing this in myself. I don't know anything about the chakra community or the crystal community or the, you know, the holistic health community, right? My focus lately has been on the folkloric witchcraft community and the African traditional religions community and those forms of practice. And so I'm seeing a shift within those circles, um, so I'm I'm cautious to say that it's a, like a, make a general statement, um, but I I do definitely uh, see the difference coming, and I think that it's uh, again there's a lot of pieces to it. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Yeah.
0: What was it like for you holding the book in your hands when you got the first uh, the first copy of it?
1: <laughs> it's uh, it was a very strange thing. I at that point I'd been working on this project for two years. Yeah. um this project for me by the time it came out was two and a half years from putting putting pencil to paper um there was a time where it was eight months where I didn't hear from Llewellyn at all so I just I wasn't sure what was happening with it yeah and uh and so when I finally got the first of all I got the e-galley the the, the um the um this was about six months ago. I got the, the digital version and yeah. that was neat. I loved the, I loved the the front cover. And then they sent me a printed, uh, a printed galley, which is not quite correct. And I knew that that was something that I had to go through, um, but it was the first physical copy. And I think I must've walked around with that for about three or four days just in my pocket. I took it to school with me. I was like showing all the people I knew, right? Um, and that was exciting. And then a weird sort of thing happens, and you other authors have probably told you this too, but um but you go through such weird emotions. there was a disconnect from it. I was just getting tired of it. And then yeah. of course, as I was getting tired of it and I just wanted to be out in it to be done um I was uh, I was uh, I had to st- I had to start doing the podcast circuit, so I heavily went into the podcast circuit doing interviews and uh, and so people were asking me questions about stuff that i had already been working on for 2 years so it's like yeah yeah you know you can tell when somebody goes into a script right so it was weird um i was like trying to find an excitement in it um and then i got my my uh, my box of books and that was kind of exciting but i already re- received about a week before the the two copies of the finished copy so uh-huh. that was really exciting you know so like it was like it was like the lord of the ring it was like the the final um lord of the rings movie where it was like you know this beautiful scene we go off into the sunset it starts to dim and you think this is it the credits and then boom we're into another 10 minute scene you know it's like- yeah <laughs> It's a good analogy. So, I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was weird. Such bizarre feelings. And um, but now I'm I'm back to that excited mode and uh and I have to stop myself from constantly going and checking on Amazon to see reviews because that's not healthy to begin with.
0: <laughs> well that can be maddening, I think, because I've seen some good and bad reviews and people can be really oh. awful on Amazon. I don't know why people... it seems needless.
1: People project. This is what yeah. I've learned, and this is what I hear from all my author friends: is the sheer amount of projection that people put onto these things. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I get it from like a therapy point of view. I get it because somebody is spending time with your work, yeah. and especially those that are written like in first person. Or you're spending eight hours sometimes with this book. It's a very intimate experience. But you're not actually interacting with the author; you're interacting with the author's words. So it's yeah. easy then to feel like you have a connection um, or or a disconnection to that individual, and then take it out and and when it, it can become very damaging, it can be become very dangerous. Um, but I think for authors, we 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 learn very quickly, and I'm in this process right now. We learn very quickly to establish really firm boundaries with people and to learn to put that outward face yeah so
0: i i want to ask you about the podcast um you've been doing a podcast for a while now and you've you've had 30 episodes talk to me about how you thought to uh, make the podcast and what's
1: been your experience doing it Absolutely. Doing the podcast is one of the best things I've ever done. And I know you, you were saying about this podcast of yours as well in similar terms. I, um, I originally started the podcast in 2021 when I was writing my book. I was very interested in not only meeting some of the authors who I, 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 I um, I, I i was really interested in meeting and connecting with but i i also knew because i was trying to gain clients at the time i needed to put content out there in order to gain a a, a sense of it, so people would actually see me right yeah so I, originally the first season is really most of my friends people some psychotherapists i know um and uh, and other individuals i kind of came across and uh, and that was it it was only 14 episodes and i thought okay that's that's good Um, A couple of the authors who I I interviewed through that, though, um, ended up being people who endorsed my book, people who introduced me to other people. So skip ahead to this summer, and I thought, you know, I'm going to redo my podcast again. Why not? Um, I I had the technology, I had the means, I was like, okay, let's do this. So I, I started connecting in with some of the other authors I had been connecting with, and uh, and said, hey, would you like to come onto my show? And I I I I determined I wanted to have a queer focused spirituality um, summer, so I didn't really put it out there like that. But if you look yeah. at the guest list, the vast majority of the of the guests are all queer, and they're all um, folkloric practitioners, or are all you know uh, they're all authors, right? There's a, a continuity between them all. Yeah. And um, and and as I got into doing that, um, the more I started to gain traction with it, the more fun I had with it, too. You know, it can be really lonely when you've spent two years devoted to a project. Um, It can become really lonely because other people in your life don't know what what it's like to to write a book like that and to be published. People don't know. People don't know the bizarre feelings that come up so to have some of those connections where like a lot of them i would end up chatting with for hours afterwards and we just do you know we just like shoot the shit we would hear the drama we would it was it was a very connecting and so I, I really enjoyed that process. People really started to listen in again and and uh, and and I gained a good following from it. Um, I went from on because uh, it was originally just on YouTube. Um, it's now on Spotify, but I, I went from maybe fifteen to 20 views to suddenly a hundred to hundred and fifty views per episode. And that is a cool thing to have. But that also speaks to some of the people I've had on. A lot of the people I've had on much bigger um, uh, names. Um, I've had like Christopher Hughes, Mara a huge number of people on there that are really great and grounded. Um, So then I have a podcast coming up for this fall, and I've devoted it entirely to folkloric witchcraft and traditional witchcraft. And uh, and I, I sent the uh, guest list over to my publicist. And working with publicists at Llewellyn really helped too, because he was able to connect me in with some of the people I really wanted to to speak with. Um, he said, "Wow, this is great." And because it's focused, because it's a mini series, it frees me up to then, you know, create other other mini series later on. Um, but I, I've pretty much done all of the. Uh, the uh, I think there's only a couple of episodes I need to to do. Um, So in the the past month, month and a half, I've done 18, 20 interviews, um, and uh, all of them have been sharing my my stuff outside of that, too. I've gotten to know them a little bit better. Um, Other publishers have connected in with me because they see the caliber of the type of questions that I'm asking. So that's been really cool. Um, Overall, it's just been a wonderful experience.
0: Any um, guests that I think surprised you the most or kind of were, I think, maybe had some insights that really blew you away?
1: I think all of my guests have blown me away mainly because I only knew them through their work. I didn't know them outside yeah. the of that. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the thing to think I've had some really incredible conversations. I had a madam on a couple of months, oh, a couple of weeks ago and her episode is coming out in the next couple of weeks. And um, and and we were talking about synchronicity. She was writing her Baba Yaga book. Um, Madame of Mita is down in in Los Angeles, there, um, quite close to where you are. Um, yeah. And uh, and she was she uh, her most recent book um, was Baba Yaga's book of, of of magic. And she was talking about what it was like for her to grow up as a, a Ukrainian diaspora person in North America, um, and, and working with this living culture. And as she was writing it, the Russians invaded Ukraine, and 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 that relationship then suddenly changed with her writing. It became very important for her to put this work out, and and that conversation really blew me away. I um I don't like to ask the 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 typical. So you wrote a book. Tell us about it. Right. Mean, the, yeah. the the questions that everybody gets asked. Right. I I really mm-hmm. like to get behind and i really like to get focused on the individual practitioner and the author and get behind and a lot of the guests have said that they've really appreciated that kind of conversation so i found that was a very intimate conversation um every single one of them blows me away Every single one of them blows me away. There's only been a couple where I came out of it and I felt like, yeah, that was a pretty run-of-the-mill conversation, but it wasn't because of them. It was because I was, you know, I was only asking run-of-the-mill conversations or that um, there there wasn't a need to go deeper, but I, I I since had some of them back on the show and we've gone deeper. So it's okay. (laughs) So Ben, what's next for you? Um, well, I'm currently penning a, um, a, working on a little project that's kind of a sequel to to um, to ancestral whispers. Um, I'm it's still in that process of promoting Ancestral Whispers, so a lot of my work online is um, about uh, promoting it. I have a class schedule now um, uh, put up there. I'm offering classes again after about a year of focusing on the book only. Um, some of the classes I've got going, um, I've got an, 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 an it's just an Ancestral Whispers uh, book group going on uh, that will start in the next couple of weeks, um, where we go through the various sections we work on the on the pieces. So it's it's like an outlet for people Um, i've got uh, really focused on um, on moving home that's really my big focus over the next year so i'm i'm professionally looking at, at building a bigger client base saving money in order to make for big journey home um the podcast is continuing as well I've got a couple of events that I'm going to be part of um most recently I was part of the witchcrafts uh the, the Salem Witchcrafts and folklore festival and I did a presentation there that's still available if people are interested in purchasing that um so so yeah a lot of stuff kind of in the mix um I'm really in a liminal space right now but um but really the focus is getting myself home and getting established over there so
0: Ben, it's been lovely talking to you. I really want to thank you for uh, taking uh, time out of promoting your book to talk to me. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. I hope I get a chance to talk to you again. For listeners, we will have links to the book in the bio, as well as um, we'll have links to the podcast as well. And uh, you can get that online, um, purchase that. Um, You're going to really love the book. Um, I think it's a very important book. And I think, uh, you know, Ben's been very modest about this. I think it's going to be something that's going to be talked about a lot in the next couple of years. Ben, thanks for being on the
1: podcast. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you. And thank you for all the content you've been producing. You've had some really amazing guests on, and I've really enjoyed listening on some of those conversations. So thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. That was my conversation
0: with author Ben Simpson, who has written the new book, Ancestral Whispers a guide to building ancestral veneration practices. We have links to this book, as well as Ben's podcast, a since podcast with Ben Stimson in the bio. Next week, we'll be speaking with Charles Harrington about the new Tarot of the Vampires, as well as their Murder of Crows Tarot. Until then, I hope that you have a blessed week.